Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Establishing you in who He is and what He's done. Trust Him. Trust Him that He's doing that week by week. He's always doing that through His Word week by week as we get to know Him better and better and better and better as He reveals Himself to us in His Word. Okay? Let God's Word have its effect on us. Now, to begin today, let's consider one of the major themes of the prophecies of Isaiah, and frankly, the whole Bible. Uh, One of these major themes. Let's consider the necessity of having a genuine faith, an examined faith, much like uh, an examined life, but even more importantly, an examined faith, a thoughtful faith, an engaged faith, a faith that we participate with, with our whole mind and heart and soul and strength. Let's, to consider, let's consider the necessity of having an honest faith in Christ Jesus. It's the idea that your faith in Christ is true, that it's not a show. You're not just putting it on. You're not just settling for something that's been handed over to you. But it's yours. You own it. You engage it. That your faith in the Lord comes from your heart. Your faith is not simply something you do to get by in your home environment because others expect it of you. And it's not something you just put on because you know it's right, even though you you are repulsed by it yourself, you really have no heart for it yourself, you really have no desire yourself, but you know it's right, so you do it. No, your faith in the Lord Jesus is who you are. It's sincere, it's genuine. You refuse to live this life without faith in Him. You are convinced that He is the one you cannot live without. Sometimes people say that about knowing your spouse. Who's the, not, not who's the person you can live with, but who's the person you can't live without. I'm not sure how wise that is, but that's one thing that's out there. But I do know that's true when it comes to the Lord. He's not simply the one that, the, 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 the religion that you can tolerate. The one that makes the most sense to you. No, Jesus is the one that you cannot live without. Life is made meaningful, useful, and complete in Him. That's a genuine faith. And throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking to those who are supposed to be God's people, but it seems that the majority of them do not have a sincere faith. They say they have a genuine faith. They say they belong to the Lord, but they do not. And Isaiah is constantly calling them out for it and prophesying on behalf of God to them to help them engage their faith in a genuine and sincere way. As I said, what's tricky here is that they say they have a genuine faith. They do much of what is required for an ancient Israelite at the time. They look like, to some degree, they look like God's people. They may even believe that they believe. At least they'll tell you that they believe that they believe. And I think if Isaiah accuses them of lacking faith in Yahweh, the special name that the Lord has revealed, if Isaiah accuses them of not being a genuine believer, of not really belonging to God's people, of not being a true Israelite, that I think in most cases they're going to become incensed. They'll become angry. They'll get offended with him. And they'll say to him, how dare you, Isaiah? How dare you judge me and say, I'm not sincere in my faith. I'm not genuine in my faith. And yet, 
That's a major theme throughout this book. And the reason it's a major theme throughout the book of Isaiah, right here to the very end, is because it's a major concern that God has for those that call themselves by His name. Self-deception. It's one of the most devious and common effects of sin. We've all seen it operative in our own lives. I've been self-deceived at times. You've been self-deceived at times. It's one of the most devious, one of the most common effects of sin. Self-deception is when we tell ourselves a lie and then we actively believe it. And let's be abundantly clear. God does not want anyone to be self-deceived, especially in the ultimate sense when it comes to our faith in Him, a genuine faith in the Lord. And you may already be thinking, this is a heavy subject And unfortunately, it is a heavy subject. But there's more to that story, right? It's right to give attention to the working out of our faith to this heaviest of subject because the stakes are so very high. It's worth taking time to re-examine the genuineness of our faith. And today, we're going to see that God gives the greatest promises to those that belong to Him, the greatest of promises. Those promises which are not yet entirely fulfilled, they are fulfilled, they are being fulfilled, they will be fulfilled. Those promises are given to comfort His people, those that belong to Christ. We are to take comfort from the promises of God in times of affliction. Life in general is attended by great affliction, isn't it? There is suffering. We all face it. And there are times, there are seasons, there are stretches when things get so hard that it really does test the genuineness of our faith. Times that get so difficult that it seems like it's, if it was possible, even the elect could be led astray. But God's not going to let that happen. And so for those that belong to Him, He gives promises, great promises, promises to comfort us, promises we can count on, and promises that will help us even in the darkest of storms. Let me pull these thoughts together, these thoughts I've been talking about. Let me pull them together like this. Confirm genuine faith in yourself, in your heart, in your mind. Confirm the sincerity and the genuineness of your faith. And as you do, you're going to be comforted in the promises of God that He gives to His people. And don't you want that comfort today? Be comforted in the promises of God. We're going to take Isaiah 65 in two parts. We'll break it down into two parts that will help us, I believe, see this. That as we confirm ourselves, we confirm for ourselves the genuineness of our faith, we also experience the comfort of God's promises. The first part we want to look at today is markers of genuine faith. Markers of genuine faith. The previous portion of Scripture we looked at last week, it's sorrowful. It's so sorrowful, but it's also somewhat beautiful in its literary form. It really is a lament, a song of sorrows. It's a complaint that God has not saved His own people. God's people are crying out to God, why haven't you saved us? Why haven't you done this? Only you can save us. And last week we talked about the appropriate response to feeling that way. God, we know you can save. Why haven't you saved? You must deliver us. 
And we talked about that last week, that we should keep waiting on the Lord when life isn't as it ought to be. We keep waiting on Him. And in fact, we can really begin there today because that is a marker of genuine faith. Think of that right there. There's a marker. What do genuine Christians do when life is not as it ought to be? What do they do? We don't complain. We wait on the Lord. We don't go out and sin. We wait on the Lord. That's what we do. And now when we read through the last chapter and we see that complaint, we can imagine that there's two groups of people, two groups of people complaining and crying out to God, you haven't saved us. Why haven't you saved us? One group is genuine. One group is crying out to God in sincerity. Oh God, please save us. We know that you can save us. But the other group is blaming. The other group is blaming God. They're blaming God for not saving them. And they're, they're blaming Him in a way that's saying, I, I, you know I can't save myself. You know I can't even bring myself to repent. You know I can't even see my own sin. And they're blaming God for their own failure to repent of the sin that they find themselves in and for the consequences that they bear because of that sin. Now, chapter 65, the one we're in today, is far more blunt than chapter 64. Chapter 65 is God's response to those who would blame Him, to that group that would complain in bitterness, blaming God. This is His response to them. And so look at chapter 65. I'm going to read for you verses 1 to 7. We'll start with verses 1 to 7. Chapter 65. And here's God prophesying through Isaiah. Verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Do you see? Do you see what God's saying? God's saying, you blame me for not making you repent. But I've been holding out my hands to you. I've been saying, whosoever would. I've been saying, come to me. I've been saying, I respond to all who seek, all who knock, all who come. And you have not been responding to me. Don't blame me for your condition. I have been more than ready to respond to you. More than ready to reach out and touch you. The problem is not on my end. It's on your end. Let's be clear, dear friend. Let's be clear. Brothers and sisters, let me reason with you. From the Word of God. You cannot blame God 
for your lack of repentance. You cannot. You must not. If someone's attitude toward their sin is, well, God made me like this. I can't change it. I've been trying for so long. The decades have gone by. It's just the way God made me. I sin in this way. If someone's taking that approach, then they are in serious trouble. That person is in serious trouble. Can we see that to blame God for our sin is to diminish or try to diminish and denigrate the character of God? God does not cause anyone to sin. And He must not be blamed for it. Doing so, and I, and I say this calmly, but because I, I like you, I'm a, a fellow sinner in need of grace. We all need His grace. We all do this. And so I say it calmly, but it should rise in our hearts. When we're inclined to blame God, when we blame Him, it really is a, a how-dare-you moment. Can you see that with me? I mean, when we catch ourselves doing that, we ought to cover our mouths. Oh, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. That is not for me to do, to blame you for my sin, for the way I give into temptation, for the way I lash out, for the way I sinfully respond, for the way I... I throw out the character of Christ for the, the, way, the times I don't look for the way of escape in sin. For the way I give full vent to anger like a fool. It really is a how dare you moment. But let's be real and honest and humble. We all have this tendency, don't we? We're tempted to do just what the fake Israelites were doing. We blame others. And at the bottom of it, when we're blaming others, when we're blaming circumstances, when we're blaming things outside of ourselves, when we're, when we're going down that road, none of us would actually say, the devil made me do it, because we know that that's wrong. But when we're going down that road in some form of another, where we're saying, the devil made me do it, what we're really saying is, God made me do it. I couldn't help it. It's the way I'm made. And see... Here's a marker of genuine faith in Christ Jesus. We are not a people who blame the Lord for our sin. We are not a people that say to God, you got to figure this one out. Or I can't stop until you stop me. We don't blame Him for our lack of repentance. Instead, we repent. Now, in those verses I just read to you, we also get a picture of a people who are actively pursuing other gods. And so, and we talked about this many times, how the idols of the ancient world, and in parts of the world today, but for the ancient Israelites, the idols that they would put up in front of them, they, 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 it's the same thing today. It's the same heart today. We have the same heart of idolatry today. We just express it in different ways. We think they're more sophisticated ways, but they're not really. They're just as crude and rough and, and, and elementary and foolish foolish and childish as anything that human have, humans have ever done in their existence. But we like to think that we're more sophisticated. It's the same heart. And so we see this picture in, the, in this chapter of, of people who are actively pursuing other gods. They're crying out to God about not saving them. 
And they're even saying to God, you don't cause me to repent. At the same time, they're saying to God, you don't cause me to repent. It's your fault that I don't repent. At the same time, they are flouting the law of God, creating forbidden altars to other gods, creating shrines and gardens and caves and tombs all over the place, eating unclean meat like pork and rat soup, you know, broth of unclean meats. And then they're considering themselves so spiritual that they warn others off so as not to mingle their purity with the impurity of others. They're saying, stay away, I'm holy. Stay away, I've been through a purity ceremony with my God in the garden over here that has nothing to do with the God of Israel. Now, I don't think that many people were doing all of these pagan-inspired rituals that I listed there all at once. I don't think many were doing all of them all at once, but it does seem that many of the people of God were doing at least some of what is listed here. And to do some of these pagan rites is not to know the Lord at all. And the whole point is, is this idea of syncretism, this mixing of the Christian faith with the faith of of idols, with the belief in other gods, with the mixing of the morals of the world. We talked about this earlier in Isaiah 2. Pagan religious practice was done to manipulate the gods, to, to get them to do what you wanted. If you, if you employed the right formula, you could get the pagan gods to work for you. So, if you wanted the people around you, your family, your tribe, your group, your, your neighborhood, your, your town, if you wanted your people to have more children, you set up a shrine to the fertility god in a tomb or in a garden or in, up on a hill or someplace like that. And, you know, maybe some cool, really cool uh, place with a view and you set it up there or a grotto of some kind. You set up that shrine to the fertility god and then you engaged in the morality at the place of that shrine because that activity of worship to the goddess of fertility was to prod the related god or goddess to intervene in that consistent way. You see, it was the formula. And when you, when you provoke them and engage them in that way, then guess what? They would then, they would then uh, intervene and increase the amount of babies given to your people. That was the pagan idea. You see, there was a logic to it. It wasn't just, oh, crazy uh, you know, a Stone Age superstition. That's how we like to think of ancient peoples. Like, they didn't know anything. Oh, oh no, no, they had logic. They employed it. They were very observant. But the sinful heart twisted it and employed that logic in that particular way. The problem is we can do very similar things. Again, it might seem more sophisticated, but it's not. For instance, if we take on, and I think this is where it's at today, if we take on the morals of the world as opposed to truth from God, what glorifies Him, how, what righteousness is to God and how He is to be worshipped in righteousness. If we take on the morals of the world, we do good works according to what the world thinks are good works, but they're not according to what God thinks are good works. If we take on the morals of the world as opposed to truth from God, then we, may, we might feel that we are quite good, quite moral, even spiritual. Some of the, uh, the greatest moral diatribes, self-righteous diatribes on social media today are fueled by this very concept 
I know the world is with me. I know the world thinks way. I know what the world approves of. I know what they'll applaud. And I know what they don't applaud, but I know what they do. And isn't that convenient? I happen to believe the same things. And I'm going to denounce everybody that doesn't agree with the world's morals on this particular issue. Oh, that's a dangerous drug. But the world's morals are not God's morals. God's values are not the world's values. Do not get them mixed up. Do not. When we do, we're seeking to manipulate God rather than to worship Him. We're seeking to bend reality to our convenient and comfortable vision of the world. And when we get them mixed up, we're in for a world of confusion in our personal lives and wrong priorities. We end up thinking that we're spiritual, that we're the warriors of truth and justice, when we are far from anything that resembles a follower of Jesus Christ. Self-deception. Now there's another marker. God's people are not those that seek to manipulate God because we know God as He has revealed Himself and we learn to worship Him as He really is. We could go through any number of the world's values and see the way that they've made an impact on the, on the church at large and raise them and say, this is where we need, we need God's truth to reign and to rule if we're going to worship the one true God. Put another way, we don't exalt in a false sense of spiritual superiority over over others. Self-righteousness is excluded from us. Now, I've pointed out a couple of markers so far of genuine faith in the Lord. Now, as we read the next several verses, we're going to see another marker. But we're also going to see what happens to the self-deceived as we read. And it is sobering. And, and notice here how God just keeps bringing this into, it, into this. He, in, in His love... He warns of the consequences of self-deception. In His love, He warns the idolater to turn from their ways. In His love. And it is sobering. And as I read this, you can, I want you, well, you can see, see it if you can spot both the final marker that I'm going to bring up here and also see if you can, see if you can find God's warning to those that are insincere in their faith. So Isaiah chapter 65, verses 8 to 16. Isaiah 65, starting with verse 8. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. 
But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. It is good for us to take take stock of our faith in the Lord. And let us consider how consistent we are in our faith, how genuine we are in our faith. Let us weigh out our responses to the Scriptures, to the Spirit of God. Let us confirm that we have a genuine faith. You know, as the Scripture says uh, to, to us, to Christians, to those who follow Christ Jesus, as it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, this is Paul speaking, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Analyze it, look at it, see if it's genuine, see where it's not. Repent of that and make certain to be genuine before the Lord. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Notice that we're called to work it out. We're called to work it out. And then we are reminded that God is the one working in us. You see, don't blame God for your sin or lack of repentance, but do thank Him for working in you. Thinking back through Isaiah, thinking back through this whole book and and how often we've talked about things just like this, I plead with each of us starting with myself, to be genuine, sincere in our walk with the Lord. How terrible it is to be self-deceived, especially in our relationship to God. Here's another marker to help us from Isaiah chapter 65. This is verse 12. We read it. I will destiny you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Notice that those who do not belong to the Lord do not listen to Him. Therefore, what is a marker of a genuine faith? What's a marker of genuine faith? Listening. Answering when the Lord calls. Listening. Answering when the Lord calls. Listening when the Lord calls. So when you hear the truth from God's Word, if you are genuine, You agree with it and you seek to apply it. When you are shown to be wrong by the Word of God, you own your wrongdoing. When you hear from God in His Word, you don't spend your time finding reasons why that doesn't apply to you. But instead, you submit your life to it and you bow before God and you worship Him. That's a marker of a genuine faith is to allow your life to be affected by the Word of God. You know, when it comes even to church discipline, when it comes to that moment of excommunication, when someone is excommunicated from the church, when when we're drawing that line of definition and we're saying to that person, listen, we cannot allow you, out of love for you, with the hope of restoration, we cannot allow you to deceive yourself 
into believing that you're a Christian and go on like that without, without us saying, no, no, my friend, that's not the case. I can't call you a brother right now. I can't call you a sister right now. Do you know what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18? The sin for which they've, they've been brought under evaluation for is not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is that they will not listen to the church. I see, that's how our God is. It's, it's not the sins that, that He provides the grace for that we can repent of and know His grace in. Our sins are forgiven by the grace of God. We go to the cross of Christ and we experience forgiveness. It's when we're in sin and we refuse to turn from it, we refuse to listen, and we're stubborn and hard-hearted about it. That's not a mark of genuine faith in Christ. It's a mark of an insincere faith. We listen. We respond. We reply to God. We answer when He calls. So when you hear the truth from God's Word, if you're genuine, you agree with it, you seek to apply it, that's genuine faith. Now there's a few markers of genuine faith. We wait on the Lord. We don't blame God for our sin and or a lack of repentance. We don't seek to manipulate God to get what we want. But we submit to God so that His, His kingdom come, His will be done in us and on earth as it is in heaven. And we listen to the Lord and we do what He delights in. We do what He delights in. Confirm genuine faith and you will be comforted in the promises of God. Take the time. Confirm it in yourself. Work to understand. Where's your heart at? What's your life looking like? What trajectory are you on? Are you bearing the markers of a genuine faith that we see here in Isaiah chapter 65? The second part of Isaiah 65 gives us promises of great comfort. We've seen some markers of genuine faith, but now we also get promises of great comfort. If we're bearing the markers of genuine faith, oh, we get to enjoy and delight in these promises of great comfort. All through Isaiah, we see the troubles of God's people, ancient Israel. These troubles were brought on them by their own sin. And not every Israelite, in fact, most Israelites, didn't seem to be true in heart. Most, many at least, but probably most, were false. They were false. The false way is the easy way. The false way, well, it seems like the easy way. In the end, it's the worst way. But being true to the Lord can feel like a losing proposition in this world. You stand up for righteousness. You seek to do what's right. And you find you are alone in that. You find you are attacked in that. It can feel like a losing proposition. It can feel that way now. Truth seems to be utterly buried in our society. Does it seem that way to you? Doesn't it feel that way? feels that way to me. And if truth is upended, then what happens in this world to those that uphold that truth? Seems like a precarious situation, doesn't it? That's because it is a precarious situation, becoming more precarious day by day, it feels like. And we're well-versed in this reality already. 
We know that if the world mistreated and killed our Lord Jesus, our Master, then we cannot expect as His servants, as His disciples, as those who follow Him, we can't expect it to be treated better than He was. If He wasn't given honor, should we expect to receive honor in this world? If He wasn't treated nicely, should we expect to be treated nicely? If He wasn't given respect, should we expect to be given respect? But the world's perspective on Christianity and Christians is not the final word. And this is the defiant tone of the prophet, isn't it? It's what God wants to infuse by conviction into the hearts of the believer. The world's word about us, about those that follow Christ, is not the final word. No, God's word is the final word to us. And within that final word, all along to God's people, the Lord promises glory and comfort and peace and joy. And we see that here. And what we see God promise here gets built upon and expanded for all of God's people in all the ages. And that includes us. So as I read this, the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, as I read it, take comfort, people of God. Having confirmed even now the sincerity of your faith in Christ Jesus. These promises are for us. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking... I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. It's important to view this prophecy rightly. For, for instance, how literal is all of this meant to be? How literal is it meant to be? A lot goes into trying to figure out exactly when this happens in the future of human history, or did it fully happen before, or is it simply a spiritual idea? Is it, is it literally to be this way in the future where the wolf and the lamb graze together, or is it all figurative, you know, pointing to the meaning of such a thing, that the, it's a metaphor that points to a greater meaning? So, for instance, why would it be a great thing if you have a wolf and a lamb grazing in the grass side by side? Not fighting, lamb not running, 
wolf not pursuing, wolf not tearing the flesh and killing and eating, but instead they're there like the best of friends. What would be so great about that? Well, if a wolf wasn't a predator, then the lamb's owner wouldn't have to defend against that predatorial instinct. There there would be far less cost and worry about protection, right? And there wouldn't be the occasional loss of property when a wolf gets in and grabs a sheep and takes it away. Plus, who wouldn't want a full-size wolf as a pet, right? That's pretty awesome. And by the way, when you hear that line, the lion and the lamb, the actual line is the wolf and the lamb, but you see the lion right there in the next thing, so, the, so you, you get the concept that it, it, it's basically the, the most predatorial. I mean, the, the shepherd's experience was often the wolf, most often the wolf, but you get the most predatorial animal and the most vulnerable animal. You put them together, and you get this picture of the peace that God is going to bring into the life of His people, an incredible promise. So will this literally happen, or does it, is it really just simply signify the degree of peace that God brings to the world that is so complete that even when it seems to us like uh, where the deepest rooted natural dynamics of conflict are, that God completely removes those dynamics and all that's left is perfect peace? Is that what this signifies? And we don't know exactly. We don't know how much is literal? Will we see the, the lion and the lamb together or the wolf and the lamb? Or will, is it just what God does in His people and, and for our experience in the future? Honestly, I'm rooting for both because I'd like a wolf, but I'd also like a lion as a pet. I think that'd be the coolest thing. And I want to put that request in now. Now, we do know that the Israelites did experience some of these promises right? In part, they did before Jesus even arrives. They, they have instances where they have periods of peace, where their cries of distress would have been absent. And they would have lived in the houses that they built and eaten from the vineyards that they planted and worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem. There were times of real peace and pro- prosperity after their return from exile. But it's also clear that these promises go far beyond anything that has already happened and point to the end. For instance, in these verses, eternal life is called out, right? That's the point of, of the passage about a child won't die, you know, a baby won't die after a few days. You know. There's no more infant mortality rate. And, and the idea that a young man will live to be 100 is not meant to say that he's going to, you know, he'll reach 100 and then die. No, the point is to say that there's no end to life, that 100 years will look like nothing. If someone were to die at 100 years, that would be like an infant dying now. That's how short a life that would be considered to be. But even beyond what has been in the past, the peace that, that Israel's already experienced, or, and the promise of a peaceful future where, where eternal life is there. So you get this eschatological, this last times, this end of the age, or the final age concept, where the, what life is supposed to be finally coming to fruition. Beyond even those two things, the past and the future, there is a promise for what we receive, you and I receive in the present because of all that the Lord has already done. And what I mean is this, because Jesus has died for us. All that trust Him have right now 
in reality, not in theory, not in philosophy, not in sentimentality, but in reality because we have peace with God, there's nothing that can take that away. There's nothing that can rattle it. It is the truest, the most firm, the realest peace that there is. That means you could walk on a battlefield with bullets flying and your life flashing before your eyes, recognition that your physical life could be taken away from you at any moment. You could be in the midst of that, but know that you have peace with God and say, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. That is real. It's the greatest. It's the promise that we have fulfilled right now in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has died for us, all that trust Him, have peace with God no matter what else is happening. We have peace inside. We have prosperity inside. We have have it spiritually. We have it where it matters most and it works its way out into all of our relationships, into our life. And because of the Lord, we have that eternal life. We have it now, which is why when I'm in the midst of of frightful things, when, when my life, when I fear for my physical life, I do not fear that life is over. I just fear that this physical life might be over, that my wife and children might miss me. Maybe even the church might miss me. Maybe not. Goodness. But I don't fear for life. I don't fear that life is over because I've got Christ Jesus. And I have eternal life. I've got it now. Because of the Lord, we have full access to the presence of the Lord. Not at the temple in Jerusalem, but in the Lord Himself in His Holy Spirit, and in His body, the church, when we're gathered like this, when we're gathered two or three, whatever size group we're gathered in, we have His presence. So we have received the promises, and we will receive the promises, and we are the most blessed people now and forever because of our Lord Jesus. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming. That's quite a thought and quite a promise to us. Everything good that we have known in creation, but perfected is coming. It's a promise. It's life as it ought to be. It's life as it truly is in Christ Jesus. What we have inside will be worked out fully in actual experience with all people that belong to God in this world. The Lord is good. Let that promise comfort us now. That whatever we face now, we don't have to be shaken. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to fear because we know the perfect love of God. And we walk in the knowledge and the good and the comfort of these promises in Christ Jesus. And let's take a moment now and zero in on something even more comfortable, comforting rather. I want to ask John to come. We're going to sing here in closing in just a moment. Remember earlier when we saw that a mark of insincere faith, it's to not respond, not to answer. When God calls, you don't answer. What would you do if you call your child and they don't answer? It's a sign of disrespect, right? Or when God calls out to us and we don't answer. God's calling some of you even now to believe in Christ Jesus, to place your faith in Him, to not turn away, to turn from your sins and to turn to Christ and to trust Him and to be baptized in His name and to join God's people. Don't disrespect Him when He's calling you. He's calling you. Remember earlier when we talked about that's a mark of insincere faith, to not respond when God calls. It's to not listen when God speaks. Well, God is not like that. 
You see, when we speak, he's listening. He's listening already. He's listening the moment we open our mouths. He's listening before we cry out. Look at this from verse 24 and 65. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. You ever had that experience when you're watching a toddler and, and you see that they're getting close to some mild danger and you just watch for a bit to, to see that they're not, they're not in imminent danger but you want them to develop their abilities and so you're watching, you're there to swoop in and then right before they fall or right before they bump their head, you do, you see the time has come to rescue them and you swoop in and you rescue them from harm's way. The child did not know. They were unaware. They didn't even know they needed saving. That's how God is with us. That's how the Lord is with us. Except that we weren't in danger of a bumped head. We were in danger of far worse. And isn't this scripture precious to us? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person... For, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were His enemies, while we were not good people, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we cried out, Jesus gave His life. You see, this promise that God gave the faithful Israelites he has fulfilled in us. Before we needed salvation, just as we called out, we found that he had already provided in our Lord Jesus going to the cross for us. My brothers and sisters, confirm genuine faith and you will be comforted in the promises of God. Let me remind you of one more picture from chapter 65. It's this picture of a cluster of grapes that comes from the previous portion, the first half of Isaiah 65. This, this, this cluster of grapes. And the cluster is bad for the most part. But there are some good grapes on the cluster. And maybe think of a vineyard that has mostly bad clusters and, and the master saying, you know what, destroy it all. But the, care, the caretaker, the steward, the, the, the overseer of the vineyard comes and says, oh, no, 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 owner, please don't destroy it yet. Don't order me to destroy it. There's still some good grapes here. There's good grapes on the cluster. Yeah, I know most are bad, but some are good, and I want to save them. So please don't destroy them. And that picture of what God promises he will do for his people what he he says he says most of these people they're they're not calling out to me they're idolaters they're pagans they're, these aren't my people but but he says no no some are jesus no no some are your people and i will save them don't destroy them let me save them and that's what god's done for us that's what the lord jesus has done for us among the many fallen and broken and accursed among the many destined for destruction. God has saved us through Christ Jesus. Oh, precious gift. Oh, the grace of God. It's worth looking again, right? Confirming that your faith is genuine so that you can be comforted in the promises of God. Will you stand with
For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.